Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to interesting people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser, and this is The Stick Up. In 2007, Bronwyn Healy founded the charity The Hope Foundation to help women wanting a life change from addiction and the sex industry. She wrote a book about the struggles with heroin and prostitution called The Trophy of Grace. I found a copy in jail and read her inspiring story. I thought to myself, one day I'd love to meet this incredible woman. And now sitting opposite me is Bronwyn Healy. Bronwyn Healy, welcome to The Stick Up. Thanks. I read your book when I was in prison at Arthur Gorey, and I think it was around about 2011, 2012, maybe later. I was really touched by your book and your story. And um, I remember saying to Graham Hembrow, who was the pastor there, I said, I'd really like to meet that woman mm-hmm. one day. And here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Where did it all start? Tell us. Well, I now am 47 years old. And for me, my I grew up, my dad was an alcoholic till I was three. When I turned three, he went to a self-help program and got sober. So 44 years ago, I'm not great at math, but I know that was 44 years ago. Mm. And back then, like now, he would say he got sober, but he never got free. Mm. So I grew up with that, you know, the aggression and the violence and the frustration and the tension in the home. He joined the self-help program when I turned three. And then at the age of 13, we moved to Brisbane from Melbourne, where I'd grown up with the same friends, same life. It's a real difficult age. I was... Watching, uh, I was reading a bit and doing some research on you yesterday, and I was thinking, "Wow, that's tough going for a thirteen-year-old yeah. to have to reestablish." It can be quite traumatic. Well, at the time, I thought, you know, oh, the promised land. Yeah. You know, it was Expo '88, oh. so everything was, you know, it was different. You got a, you know, season pass, and you got to go to a different part of the world every afternoon after school. But then that finished. Yeah. And I'd come up and I'd had literally the same friends, the same life my whole life. I'd been at the same primary school and saying goodbye to what was known and moving into something that was unknown and a place that was unknown and people that were unknown. And I didn't know, you know, I was 13. I didn't know who I was. And I went from Mini Pond Central School. I lived on one side of Mini Valley Racecourse and my school was on the other. Yeah. You know, I used to have to wake mum up with her hair in curlers and she'd light a cigarette and run the Tirana into the electricity pole again, trying to get out of the car spot and drive me to school. And everything was the same. It was Groundhog Day. It was safe. Yeah. It's what I knew. Yeah. And you, and you come up here, you went to uh, a prestigious private yeah, school. Fancy, pri- fancy-ass private girls' school. And they knew each other. Like I came term two, grade eight. So people already knew each other. They had pre-established friendships. And it was very hard to break into what they'd already created something. You know, it's funny. People have the impression that you put your kids in those sort of schools and it's guaranteed they'll never get in trouble Mm. or anything like that. I spent 23 years in jail. I met so many kids Mm. that have been to those schools. And some of those kids were some of the most disturbed, 
mm-hmm. human beings I'd ever come across yeah. because of that growing up with that expectation or you know some of them people can be quite different. I was saying to a friend on the phone the other day I was saying you know when I went to we were talking about you know the high school the, the school that I left when I left the fancy school at the end of grade 10 to go to another school and the school that I went to was known for gangs and drugs and you know, I was like, but those kids didn't have access to their parents' liquor cabinets because their parents just, you know, bought a cask of wine. Like, they mm. didn't have a liquor cabinet. They mm. didn't have access to their parents' medicine cabinets. They didn't mm. have access to their parents' money. Whereas at the private schools, you know, like my 14th birthday, my mum had to call the police because the private school kids had bought all their parents' liquor and were drunk in the driveway, mm. smashing bottles, and the neighbours called the cops. Like, my mum's thinking, here's these, all these good 14-year-old, you know, private school boys mm. and girls, and they're causing chaos. Whereas mm. when I went to the other school, and everyone was stoned all the time, except me, mm. there was just such a difference, polar difference. And obviously my mum had a big heart, so she loved the elite private school kids and the druggos eating all their chocolate yogo just as much. <laughs> that trying to fit in, and, and obviously bullying goes hand in hand with that, and, and often those sorts of kids will belittle you. Mm. They'll make you feel, you know, iso- they'll isolate you, and that's what bullies do. Mm. And um, what was going on? What was your thought process then? It, it was about survival, really. You know, it was just get in, get, get it done, focus on your schoolwork, try not to take it too personally. I remember going to the counsellor and just being like, they're so mean, you know, like, they're so mean. And And, they are. And she was like, you know, why don't you try, try, you know, try a different group. You know, you put in the hard work. I was like, why can't they just stop being mean? Yeah. And You don't understand that as kids. No. Kids don't understand why other people are being violent. No, they don't. And we have no idea, you know, it's like my, my life mantra now is be kind to yourself. Yeah. Like we have no idea what's going on in someone else's story. Like the person that serves you at the, you know, service station this morning, we have no idea what's going on for them or why, you know, we like, why were they so rude to me? Yeah. Like I'm a nice person. I was just like, hey, how are you? Yeah. And it costs (laughs) nothing. It costs costs nothing. As I got older for just dealing with doing a lot of work on my trauma, I'm interested in people's Mm. stories. Well, the the thing is everyone has a story, right? So we've all got conversations from our own ruins. Mm. Wow, that's a way of putting things, isn't it? That's a good podcast title, Conversations from the Ruins. Yeah, that is a good podcast. I like it. Well, if if I end up, I'll I'll, I'll interview you then. Please. Please do. I look forward to it. Put you on the flip side. I've been through the ruins. (laughs) Hey, um... So just tell me, what was the process? What, like, you know, where did you go through from here? The bullying and and obviously moving to another school. How was your self-worth? I'm now studying a diploma of counselling after years and years and years. And I think that what I realise now is that I've always been intrigued with people's stories because, again, everyone's got one. Mm. And that whole reality of back then, you know, there's so much power in identity. When Mm. someone doesn't have a clear identity... They don't know where they're stepping. They don't know why they're stepping a certain way. They don't know why they're making a certain decision. You know, it's like when someone's got an awareness of their true identity, they make decisions and they take steps based on that, based on their values. When you don't know what that is. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? You scramble. It's hard. You know, so I ended up, you know, I tried different, you know, the 
school counselor was like, try this group and just try and make friends. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I tried different groups and, you know, I joined the art group because I love art, but I'm crap at art. So Same. Oh, I've got I'm, all these visions in my head yeah. of different pictures and I, if, I, if, if I, I could put paint that, that, it'd be a masterpiece. I tell you what, it'd be in the art gallery. Yeah. I tell, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned oh, that no, in my grade 10 art group. And then you feel like a failure. So mm. instead of going, I failed at the art group, you put labels on yourself and you go from I failed at it, like a doing thing, to a being. Yeah. Like I'm a failure. Yeah. And I, I'm not and I wasn't, mm. you know, 13, 14, 15 years old and you don't know who you are. Yeah. Identity is massive as a kid, isn't it? We're all trying to fit in. That's where today kids go to gangs and they get validated in there and people mm. tell them they're all right. And that age from like 12 to say 25 mm. is a real – I don't know. It's a real crucial point for young people, and you know what I mean. And I, I man, I spent twenty three years in jail, and that's the, for me that was the most confusing part of my whole life. Mm. You know, people want to belong. Yeah, is the bottom line. Mm. You know, it's like, and you know, even now, my kids who are now seventeen, nineteen, the firstborn turns twenty one next week, which is mind blowing in itself. But you know, I I love the ragamuffins. You know, mm. it's like they're my people. Yes, yeah, Like, you know, I go into high schools now and looking the way that I look and I tell them my story and they're like, nah. Mm. I've had kids ask to see my track marks. Yeah. Because they're like, there's no way that you, looking like that, <laughs> yeah. have that. That's not your story. I'm like, yeah. well, I didn't make it up. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, no. but my kids are like, mum, not everyone's your new best friend. You know, like the troubled lady in the supermarket. She, well, I'm like, she doesn't know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people just want to be seen. You know, yeah. there's power in someone feeling seen. You know, I talk about people being seen, known, loved. It's like when someone feels fully seen and truly loved, there's nothing they can't do. I think for me, I think love is the cure to trauma. Yeah, I true think, love. Like yeah. the, And I don't mean love like the what we get to see in the Hollywood movies. I mean the true love that says, I see you in your mess and I'm not going anywhere. That's true love. Right? Yeah, that is true love. And there's power in that. There's healing in it. There's yeah. redemption in it. You know, I say to people, like, authenticity can't be faked. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But some people are like, oh, you, it's okay. You can trust me. You can be vulnerable with me. Well, and that's and we're within here now. 30 seconds, people like you and I who have had to know what it takes to survive, right? Yeah. We're like, yeah, nah, something doesn't feel safe here. Like, yeah, someone can't tell me that I can trust them and be vulnerable. Yeah. I'm going to know. Street intuition. You know. You can't get a degree in that. You can't. Tell me about your dad's sobriety. Was was he in AA? Yeah, yeah, AA. AA. Still is. Yeah, yeah. 44 years later. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But part of doing step work is getting a life plan. Mm. Yep. What did, did you learn much from that? Normally families learn from it as well. Well, see, I was three. So my brother was is five years older than me. So he was eight. So he has more memory yeah. of, you know. The active stuff. The a- anger and the tension and the thing. And mine was, I remember my parents trying to do their best to love us, mm. you know. And for them, and again, like, you know, you heard me say my mum welcomed in the elite private school girls and all the stoners with that wanting to eat her chocolate yogo. Right. She was in Al-Anon mm. and our 
the phone was like a hotline. That's a committed family. Al-Anon's a, a, a group that supports members like alcoholics or addicts. Mm, for the fam- families their, of. Their mm. family members of, mm. that, you know, that you know that's a good combination. Yeah, so she was, you know, our, the kettle was always on the boil. Someone was always there for a cup of tea and a chat. And mm. she was like that until she passed away last year. Wow, what an amazing woman. Yeah. What an amazing woman. And those people, like yourself, contribute so much to society. Mm. She was the one that loved me through all of my years of addiction and her love was a, it wasn't the kind of love that's like, I love you all the best. It was an, I love you in the mess. I'm going to love you through the mess. And, you know, there was times in the depth of my heroin addiction, I, I looked like, you know, I was 40 kilos, looked like, looked and smelt, felt like death warmed up, you know, and she loved me. As a kid, you know, what did you aspire to be? I wanted to make movies and go to Hollywood. Yeah. I still, I was thinking about it actually on the drive here yeah. today. I thought, you know what? I actually still, I think it's in me. Yeah. There's creativity in me and I have, j- I know, I know I'm in a good place on my healing journey and my, you know, talk about healing my way to wholeness. I know I'm in a good place when the creativity starts to reemerge and I start to write again. Um, I feel it. Two o'clock in the morning, it wakes me up, my creativity. Yeah. Here I am. Yeah. Knocking on the door. Let's go. Yeah. So that's that's restirring. In, I was watching a podcast with some woman on Facebook. I was watching one there yesterday, and you say the first time you started smoking, you smoke pot. Mm. And you, you said I deserve a treat. Mm. That's a common thing, isn't it? With like addicts, and that's where it all starts. I deserve a treat. I deserve rest. I deserve a break. Yeah, mine was I got two weeks out from the end of grade twelve, and you know, again, all the people at school were smoking pot every day. So. Yeah. I was a bit like the science experiment because I'd always said no. And they were like, oh, my gosh, Brahman said yes. Yeah. And it was. like, Was it a ritual? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, everyone left school at lunchtime to walk to a girl's house that lived around the corner and, you know, passed around the bong and passed around the joints. And I had been going with them anyway yeah. and not smoking it just because they were my friends. Do you look back now and you think that was always going to happen? I'd, I was setting myself up. <sighs> Probably. There was always a curiosity, yeah. you know, you'd watch them and then they'd, you know, get on their tangents with their artworks and their writing and go off into his own and it there was romantic. a curiosity. Looks romantic from afar, but when you get to know the nitty gritties of it, you just think there's nothing romantic about that. And the darkness of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and mine was a pretty quick, you know, downward spiral. Yeah. How long until uh, you started smoking pot did you pick up heroin? A year and a half. Very similar to my own. Yeah, and it was in between, like it was my first year at uni and I would drink and take speed and ecstasy and acid. And I had friends that had started using it, you know, in grade 12 and at the end of grade 12 and that first year at uni. Heroin back then, you know, it's like I say when I talk in schools, you know, it's like there was killer batches of heroin going around. And I say, you know, it's like, don't get me wrong, every batch of heroin can kill people. But back then, you know, in the mid to late nineties, yeah, there was a people the Russian rule out, dying. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. It, I spent the nineties in prison. I spent from nineteen ninety to late ninety eight, and that was when the Cabramatta thing was yeah. happening. And so, you know, people just—I was hearing stories of a bloke walking in an underpass, and there was four people dead, but mm-hmm. he still walked past them to get on. And yep. that's the madness of the disease. You can be right in front of you, yeah. And it can be anybody. Yeah, and it just doesn't deter you. Addiction has no bias on who it, you know. I look at ice, right, and and I've got a predisposition to mental health issues. If I have, like, I've had ice, right, Mm. 
If you tried to sell it to someone, say, here's a shot of madness, mm. you can have this, mm. you're going to feel good for about two minutes, mm. but for the next week and a half, you're going to want to kill yourself Will you do it. Right. A radical considerate. Yeah, of course. Then the normal person will go, oh, leave yep. me out of that. Yeah. And speed was starting to take a turn. I went to rehab in 99. So I was um, in the sex industry in the mid-90s. And speed was starting to take a turn then towards ice. Mm. So I remember my dealer being like, I've, I've got a new batch. Mm. And I was like, what the F is that? Yeah. Like, what is that? And I was awake for three days. Yeah. Like, it was just like. Crazy. What? But you're right. If you were to say to someone here, take it for two minutes, you'll feel this. And then, and then you'll feel that. Mm. The addict will consider it. Of course. So you could say to an addict, you could say, here's this drug. It's going to make you feel good for an hour. It's going to destroy your life. Would you take it? The addict will consider it. Yeah, of course. And I, I did. Yeah. I did consider it. And I did take them. Mm. When you don't even know what it is. Yeah. And someone's just like, here, take this. Okay. Give us a go. Sure. That's the, the madness of The madness. You talked about like when you started using heroin and was it was it like a, a one-off here and there or did it grab you straight away? No. So I was in a relationship with a guy who was a junkie mm. and I remember when him and I started, I wouldn't call it dating because we didn't go on dates. We just like smoked pot and took drugs and yeah. sat around the lounge room a co- a went for a walk. Yeah. yeah. Codependent relationship. Which at the time I thought was love. He had yeah. the nicest, the most amazing blue eyes I'd ever seen. Um, yeah. Maybe part of me thought I could save him. You know, had this big tragic story and history and, you know, who knows. Feels like a very long time ago. I remember basically we got pregnant. I had an abortion and I felt so much guilt and shame that all I wanted to do was be numb. But when him and I started seeing each other, people were like, you're going to end up a junkie. Mm. And I was like, no, I won't. I I just, inverted commas, take party drugs. Mm. Like I smoke pot every day and we grew pot, Mm. but I don't, no, I don't think so. So the trauma, the the trauma of the abortion, do you think that was the catalyst for your own use? Absolutely. Look yeah. back on my timeline, storyline. I've seen it. I was watching your podcast and I said, aha, uh-huh, that's where she start. That's yeah. where it all starts. This is the catalyst. I said, this is the catalyst where, the, mm. you know what I mean? Because that, that's that numbness. And in my case, it was being sexually abused. Mm. That was the catalyst of that sort of thing appealing to me. Mm. Any, to feel anything other than I was feeling. Yeah. We just, I just wanted to be numb. Yeah. I didn't realise the guilt and the shame that I would feel. The doctors don't tell you about that, do they? Of course not. No. She made the phone call and booked in for the abortion clinic three days later. Yeah. You know, I was 18. Do you think when they do this sort of thing or recommend it or whatever, do you think they should be really putting support around girls or women? I feel like, well, again, you know, that was nearly 30 years ago. You know, for me, again, it's about coming alongside people. Yeah. Giving people, if people, if I'd have felt genuinely supported, who knows what would be different? Yeah. But ultimately, it's that's not my story. No. You know, I don't have an almost 30-year-old kid. Yeah. Again, the numbness, you know, I then used heroin between 18 and 24. Mm. And it took me down the, the darkest, most hellish spiral of, you know. Soul-destroying. It's soul-destroying. When you find yourself, you know, stealing from grannies and... You know, talking my great aunt out of a thousand dollars because I needed a new bond for a new house because my something, you know, mm. some bullshit story. 
Isn't it crazy <sighs> how manipulative and cunning you can become once that drug enters your system? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And doing things and saying things and making decisions, again, the addiction makes the decisions for you. You just mm. follow through with it. Yeah. You know. I was a bank robber, right? And I don't think there's not a hope in hell that I would have been able to do what I did if I wasn't, you know, addicted to heroin. Of course really. not. Or you And you, let's imagine, you would have not, you would have not needed to, mm. right? So I remember when I started in the sex industry, getting paid however much I got paid, never mind the fact that I just had sex with strangers, selling mm. them my body and soul mm. for money, for drugs, yeah. ultimately. I love how you, I love your openness about how you can talk about that. Like, mm. I mean, you've made peace with it, obviously. Yeah. And, yeah. and you've forgiven yourself for it. I have. And I've forgiven a lot of other people in the story, yeah. whether they ever heard the forgive, you know. Yeah. It's like there's been a, it's been a huge forgiveness journey. There were so many people in my story that could have been like, no, don't do that. Oh, you're worth more than that. So you carried them you resentments know? for a long time towards those people? There's different things that have popped up over the last, you know, I went to rehab 23 years ago now. There's a lot of things that have popped up in time. I'll meet someone with a, with a, a, the name of someone who was in my story mm. and you're like, oh, holy crap, hold on. I haven't quite worked through I thought I had. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. you meet someone and their name is dot, dot, dot yeah. and you're like, oh, hold on a minute. Or someone's eyes or the smell of a certain aftershave or I still don't like the sound of high heels on the pavement. Yeah. yeah. It's just certain Triggering, things. huh? Yeah. Triggering. But, but, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's okay. And it's just, you know, it's finding peace. It's it's an awareness that, you know, I made the choices that I needed to make to survive. And all of these years later, it's about under, having an understanding of my worth and value now. That's a beautiful thing. That's when you get empowered, isn't it? Like that's through my own trauma counselling. Mm. That was a process of getting back my self-worth. Right. But also realising too, Russell, that our stories matter. We matter. Mm. These stories matter. Our voices matter. And if there's one person on the other side of, you know, our chat today yep. who gets a whisper of hope. Yeah. I'm sure there will be. I, look, I read your book and, and anyone looking for an amazing book to read, read Trophy of Grace by Brumman. I, I read Between the Lines and so when you went and seen a, a doctor at, in Brisbane who was mm. an addiction, and I dare say it's Dr. Reese. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and um, I haven't seen him for a long, long time, but yes, back then, pivotal. He'd done, he done amazing stuff. Dr. Reese is a, re a doctor in Brisbane that specialises in helping addicts, you know, mm. whether it's getting them on methadone or bupomorphine or, you know, we had access to rehabs and sort of stuff like that. And there should have been, and he was a bit, he was looked down upon by, by the medical profession or what he was yeah. doing. I think he copped a lot of grief. Yeah. Like, and I was early days of naltrexone, like this is back in 1999 for me. Yeah. You know. Did you get an implant, did you? No, I didn't. I was in the, again, the old, old, old school days where it was a tablet. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, I'm sitting in his office and he literally said, you need to go to rehab. And I was like, I thought, junkies went to rehab and he looked at me he's like you've been using heroin for six years you're a junkie and i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> and denial. and yeah you know he's like can you go a day without it no by choice he's, yeah. he just looked at me and he gave me two phone numbers and he said you need to you know to pick a number you need to go to rehab and the first one i called was engaged mm. and the second one i called and they said we've got one spare bed and it's for a female mm. you're in come in two days what about that for good timing? Right. So 1st of July, 1999, 23 years ago, this 24-year-old, angry, hurt, broken, violent, 
every second word was a swear word, broken little girl walks into this rehab support home having no idea what was going to happen. No idea. That's daunting. It's huge. That's daunting to walk around and and you're hearing the words you're hearing, the terminology you're hearing, and you go, what? And what am I I doing here? How the heck did I get here? How much denial do you think you're in? It was pretty quick where, you know, well, you're hearing other people's stories too and you're like, oh, oh, I'm not here on parole or I'm not here on that or, you know. You're looking for the differences and not the similarities. Yeah, 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 right? But then you're kind of like, but somehow we've all ended up here and you become like a weird Motley crew family. Yeah. Like we're all in this together, right? I, I just wanted to be well and I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't understand then that there was a difference between being um, clean and sober and being free. I didn't understand there was a difference and that that was going to be a lifelong process. My mate was in rehab with a really famous actress, actor and I don't want to disclose who it is because it's anonymous. And he just said, I come here because I just want to breathe. Yeah. And I thought, man, I can relate to that. Yeah. So, and this bloke, he's won an Oscar since and mm. done some amazing stuff because he's in recovery. And what's the importance of recovery in your life? It's everything. Yeah. It gave me life. And they say what you put before your recovery, you lose. Yeah. Mm, that's yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I, I am nothing without it. I'm back what I was if I, you know, mm. if I start putting it second. Mm. And the reality is when you dig into the vulnerability of your own story, mm. you know, it's like, well, I'm not going to – I'm not one for sweeping crap under the rug and trying to, you know, be like, oh, it's fine, It'll, I'll do with that later, you know. Mm. I was having a conversation with my middle daughter yesterday and we're talking about um, food and health and wellness mm. and all of that and um, – I just said, you know, I've let some of that slide in the last 12 months. And I said, looking back on my storyline, I'm like, when did I do that? And she looked at me and she said, when your mum died. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is true. You know, because that she was my closest person. Yeah. Yeah. What was your relationship like with your mother? So in my childhood, you know, my brother's jokes and says you know I was the favorite as an angel child and you know I used to sit under the table at the Al-Anon meetings and recite the you know serenity prayer Mm. and I didn't really know any different other than the fellowship Mm. and then you know we moved to Brisbane she started working real estate you know got a car phone back in the day when it was the size of a brick um and we used to just you know go for a drive and eat ice cream and we always had great chats and then you know I made the choices that Took me. I moved out of home, started smoking pot, started taking other drugs, fell into heroin, and did you see the pain you were causing her? There was nearly an eighteen-month season where I didn't see her at all because one of the times I got off the bus, they were living on the sunny coast, and I got off the bus and I, I looked like I was dying. Yeah, and you know, I look at photos. Thankfully, she took so many photos at the time. I hated it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, and there's a photo where I I literally look like skin and bones yeah. and I remember how I felt and I remember how I smelt you know yeah. and when I went to rehab you know she was sitting outside you know waiting at that Dr. Reese appointment she was sitting there waiting you know I remember her dropping me off to rehab and just being like I really hope and pray this is it looking back did she enable you or was she disable you I think that through the work that she'd done in the fellowship for herself with Al-Anon, 
she didn't really enable me. That's you know, it's good. like there was, and I'd be like, oh, I need $50 for food. I've got no food. And she'd be like, no. <laughs> I'll this, buy your food. Yeah. And this was before Uber Eats or, you know, you can't get, you know, a Coles delivery delivered, mm. which is now what I tell people who's, mm. you know, yeah. kids are like, oh, I need money for food. I'm like, mm, yeah. send them a meal. <laughs> like, I get it all the time. Send like, them groceries. 10 o'clock at night, get a text. Oh, I need to buy bread and nappies. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But this is the thing. I've been on the other side. So the beauty of when I look back at my story, you know, having my mum for 46 years of my life, she was a thread of beauty and grace. Mm, you know, way of describing your mum. You know, she, she literally prayed me out of the pit of hell that was addiction and the sex industry. Yeah. And showed up at the illegal brothel that I worked in one night. I don't even know, still don't know to this day how she got my phone, how she got my address. Mm. And I'm dressed ready for work. Mm. Her 20-year-old baby. Ooh. Heartbreak, right? Writes her phone number on a piece of paper, slides it across the table mm. and says, I'm here if you need me. Ooh. You know, and that didn't change. So then, you know, left rehab and got pregnant to a guy I'd met in rehab, which we both said at the time doesn't come highly recommended. He then became the father of my three daughters who, like I said before, are now 17, 19, 21. Yeah. I've raised them on my own and, you know, she was there. Yeah. She was there. She was a constant. Yeah. Break. Yeah. My mum, my, you know, my mum caught a train from Liverpool, Sydney to Alice Springs to visit me in jail for a one hour <laughs> visit. Nothing like a mother's love. The love of a mother. Man, there's no, nothing they won't do. You know, and, and obviously, you know, you went to rehab, that you got clean. Mm. And what was it like after that? And you were back into the real world. Yeah. Of the responsibilities and the problems that you were escaping from in the past were still there. They were still there, plus you've got the add-on of all of the guilt and shame once you realise that you'd become a, you know, societal freak. Yeah. All of the pain and trauma that I was living with, but the pain and trauma that I'd caused. Yeah. So much pain. And then there's a lot of, you know, making amends with people and (laughs) that's a journey. Yeah. And I'm sorry that I did that and I can't change it. And I can't what if, and I can't, you know, now at 47, you know, and I've been in, you know, went to rehab 23 years ago. You know, it's like, I can't change it and I can't live in regret. Yeah. You can't look at the sliding doors of what if I'd have not, what if I'd have not, what if I'd have, or what if I had have, or what if, you know, it's like, you just can't. And so for me, it was, you know, I got pregnant, we got married and when my baby, who's, like I said, turns 21 next week, which is mind-blowing in itself, when she was six months old, I started to write. A friend from church gave me a computer and just said, write your story. Yeah. And it was therapy. Like, it was just sitting in a room with a six-month-old rolling around on the floor, yeah. writing a book that I, I didn't know was a book. It was my story, Trophy of Grace. Yeah. And, you know, that came out in 2004, like 18 years ago. And, and, and you read it. Yeah, I read it. A great read. You know, I, I used to it. just donate boxes of it to the jails because I was just like, these are my people. Yeah. <laughs> it's important, isn't it? No, like, it, it's funny. I can walk down the street and um, I can pick out a crim. There'll be a th- I can get to the airport and I, I know who the oh, crims yeah. are. And yeah. you, obviously, you know where the addicts are. You know where the, the yeah. broken people are. We we're, that's where we have this magnet for them. I think, too, I have an affiliation. I am them. Yeah. You know, my, my heart is a mosaic. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, seeing someone and loving them right where they are. And that's the beauty about, you know, by telling my story or whatever, I tell it freely. I, I find telling my story is healing for yeah. me. You know, it's cathartic. And, 
you know, and, and people say, oh, doesn't it trouble you? It doesn't trouble me. No. Because, you know, what happened to me, you know, I, I like I talk about this thing. I say, you know, I carried this stuff, a backpack of all this horrible stuff that don't belong to me. But when I tell my story, I hand it back to its rightful owner. Mm. And that's cathartic. It's cathartic for me. And, and it's I, not helpful for anyone, Russ, if we leave our crap at the door. No. And check out. No. Like, we've got to work through it. We've got to walk through it. You know? But then hand, I like, I like to, I, I try to say, I've got the blueprint how to get out of there. Mm. I'll give it to you for nothing. Because mm. I can't keep what I've got, the old no. NAA, NAA cliche, I can't keep what I've got unless I give it away. No. The importance of that. And, you know, you obviously tell your story freely. And, and, yeah. and you must get so, it must be so rewarding knowing that you're playing a part, you're a healer. Healer by name, but healer by nature. One of my friends years ago said to me, she said, Bronwyn, you know what you are? And I was like, well, I don't know, what? Mm. <laughs> and she said, tangible redemption. Nice. And I was like, that's a, that's a good name for a book too. It is. Maybe it will be. Part two. Maybe it will be. But it's that. It's, you know, this is my real life story. And when people look at you and they're like, there's no way that's your story. And the kids want to stick their finger in your track marks because they don't believe you. Yeah. There has been transformation. It's not been without sacrifice. Yeah. And absolutely not without surrender. And absolutely not without commitment to the journey. You know, it's like it's been 23 years. It's been a journey and it hasn't been a bed of roses. It hasn't been, it hasn't been, I've been married and divorced twice. You know, I've raised these kids on my own, started a charity. You know, I've been treated like dirt. I've been taken for granted. I've been betrayed and hurt by people. I'm sure I've hurt people. You know, it's, it's not without, it's pain. How do you feel when you see other people judging these people that you love? I am kind, you know, I kind of am a bit like... You know what? Imagine if someone had have done that to me. Refrag their thinking. It's like that person could have been me. Hundred percent. You know, when someone's like, "Oh, you got nominated for this award, or you this, or this, rah rah rah." Well, that person that you just spoke of this way, or you just refused help, or you just said wasn't worthy or valued, that could have been me. Hundred and ten percent. And they're like, "Oh, it's making everyone realize every person." is loved and valued. We're all here for a purpose. I'm a big believer in when you deal with someone's trauma, when you treat the, pro- the trauma, there's a fair chance the problems that what you perceive as being the problem will naturally dissipate. For me, addiction was a symptom. It, it, of trauma. Yeah, right? But if you don't sit with the wounds, like, you know, again, 23-year journey now of recovery, if I didn't sit with the wounds and deal with the root issues, I would just be going cyclically in and around the same Matterhorn mm. over and over and over and over. my life would be a hurricane. But you've got to sit with the wounds and you've got to uproot the roots. That's the underlying issue. I, I do a bit of work at Corrective Services New South Wales. Corrective Services Queensland won't give me a foot in the door. They don't want the answer, mm. unfortunately. Not yet. No, not yet. But they say, you know, how do you... You know, how do we just stop this violent offender? So, well, let's find the underlying issue. Mm. It's drug addiction. What's, well, what's the underlying issue with a drug addiction? It's mm. trauma. Mm. Don't worry about... Dealing with the drug addiction until mm. you deal with the trauma. Yeah. That's but, the starting point. But it's not just to it's not just uprooting the roots and get and, and you know, kicking it out the door. It's actually helping people sit with the wounds. Yeah. And heal. And making peace with it. And heal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, make peace. So you can look at it look at someone on the other side of the microphone and, and own your story. Like I believe this. This is true for me. Transformation is real. Redemption is real. Hundred percent. This is a, this is our tr- true life, real stories. See, for me, when I learned about my own trauma, I realised 
about the trauma I caused others. Yeah. And that's when I could truly be remorseful for what yeah. I'd done. I, I couldn't, I was faking it, saying, oh, yeah, I'm sorry what I did, because mm. I didn't understand it. But when I understood my own trauma, I went, wow. Mm. You know, and there's that guilt and everything like that, but I make peace with that as well. Gives us, gives, it's given me a different grace for other people too. Isn't that beautiful? You know, because you're like, if you see, if we see people through the eyes of grace that we know that we needed, Mm. you know, you're kind of not just like, oh, what a, what a dickhead, Mm. you know, I can't believe they just did that, said that, thought that of me. Mm. Because again, we have no idea what the roots of their trauma is either. Yeah. We don't know their story. We don't know their generational bloodline of challenge and you show me a violent person and i'll show you a traumatized person yeah because it's a reactive behavior every time you show me a really bad drug addict, i'll show you a traumatized person yeah someone who self-harms a traumatized person I, there's a, a, a famous afl player that just everyone wants him to, his name's ben cousins and i look i'm mm. hopefully going to be doing some work with him down mm. the track and i want to get to his trauma yeah see my friends over time have been like you he, you need to you need to sit with him. Yeah. He needs to sit, like, he needs to understand that th- there's hope. Yeah. But it, he can't do it if he doesn't sit with his wounds. Yeah. And find peace. Because even, even if we do, you know, there's been times in my 23 years where I've told my story, but from a place of a different level of brokenness. Mm. And it's like, holy crap, I feel like, have I caused more damage? Because I was coming from a different place. But my heart motive was pure to tell the story and to give other people hope. But isn't it beautiful when you can communicate through your vulnerability and someone else's vulnerability? Mm. Isn't it just a, it's just a beautiful, I, I, like in my job at The Voice of the Soul, I've done a thousand, I think I've done 1,100 trauma interviews mm. until I couldn't do it anymore. Like I just knew what my limits were. You yeah. know what I mean? It started to, started to have an adverse effect on me and I don't do it no more. I'm still in, like I'll still sit on them and everything like that yeah. and have play a part in it, but yeah. it's just things that I can't do no more. Yeah. But it's knowing your boundaries too. It is. And that and that's and, and let's touch on that. Mm. Let's touch on what how important are boundaries in your life with people? Huge. And again, I'm like I'm not twenty four seven. I'm not I don't people don't have access to me just because they can through connectivity of social mm. media or whatever. Mm have access 24-7 doesn't mean that they have access 24-7. And for me, it's always been, you know, my I've started raising my girls on my own when they were two, four, six, you know, a a long, long, long time ago, you know, 15 years ago. And for me, it was like if they didn't know at home that they were loved and valued and created with a purpose, then I had no right to go outside the door and tell anybody attached to the charity, to travel anywhere around the world and tell this story, to meet any famous politician or, you know, the future King of England or, you know, be interviewed on any TV show, telling other people if my closest people and my closest fruit didn't know first. So my kids have always known regardless of how busy my life was or what my large capacity was, that they that loving them and raising them was a priority. Now, when I mentor people, it's, you know, what are you doing someone else could be doing? And what are you not doing that only you can do? Yeah. Right? Could, so yeah. only I could be their mum. Yeah. So my mum and my dad, at the time when they were still together, they helped with my girls. We had village, you know, we had people that mm. came alongside me raising them. But ultimately, they only had one mum. Yeah. So other people could do other things for the charity. Now with our stories, other people can tell, you know, like you could say, oh, I read Trophy of Grace and her story is dot, dot, dot. But only I know the full extent of my story. Only you will ever know the full extent of your story. 
for me, having boundaries has been a, a good safety net. It's meant, you know, there's been times of burnout you know, for that's sure. early days of recovery about the importance of boundaries. Absolutely. And I use the analogy, yeah. boundary, my boundaries are like fly screens on my windows. Mm. They stop me from getting bitten by bugs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think, you know, the importance of it. And that's, that was one of the hardest things for me in recovery is, oh, what do you mean I, I can't say no? She's my mate or mm. she's my friend. And what that was that bit. Yeah. Too easy now. Yeah. You learn, the more we learn about our own worth and value as well, the more you put healthy boundaries in place. Mm. You know, and, and to honour someone else to the dishonour of yourself is not helping anybody. So to say to someone, this isn't against you, this is for me, this yeah. boundary's not against you, this boundary's for me. Yeah. Is actually, it helps people respect you. Yeah, 100%. And the feedback I get to these days is I learnt from you, I learnt mm. boundaries. Yep. Because you've got healthy boundaries. No, you can't, I'm not I'm not a bank, I'm not lending you money, it's simple. No. I'm not enabling you. You can't sleep on my lounge, I've got my kids in my house. Yeah. Just so many of them things, because people will, especially in that life, mm. will push your boundaries right to the limit to the point of breaking you. And when you're empathic and you're a giver... Takers yeah. don't stop taking. Yeah. yeah. I was one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sitting under the tables at the Al-Anon meeting, what was, your, what was your take? Like, do you think, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think it, it could have been an intergenerational thing with addiction or a genetic thing? Again, the work that I've done in the last 23 years, you look back and you're like, you look at your family tree <laughs> mm. And there's chaos everywhere. Yeah, you know, there's broken marriages. There's because people can be clean and, and everything like that, and still demonstrate addictive behaviours. Yeah, and if someone's not free, then they're going to pass on that crap to the next generation. You know, it's like I want to be a generational bloodline changer for my family. You know, that doesn't mean my kids are going to be perfect and not, you know, not drink and not this and not that. They're free spirits. They're incredible young women, but. You look at the story and it's like there's all of this chaos behind me. I don't want there to be chaos in front of me either. And you can make that change. Of course. It's up to you. Of course. And be honest about the story. So my kids know my story. They've heard it a thousand times. So you weed out the behaviours. But sitting under the – yeah, I do, yeah. But sitting under the table there, you know, you, you there's not many people in the world that don't know the serenity prayer, really. People say, like, oh, if that happened with your dad, why, why did you even ever choose drugs? It's like, well, I wasn't thinking about my dad's addiction. It's not a deterrent. It didn't stop me. No. And – for my kids, it's like they've seen, you know, the Hope Chicks, they've seen the story. They've journeyed alongside these women when they've gone in and out of jail or in and out of rehab or in and out of active addiction or, you know, they've sat around our dinner table and shared meals with us and then they've died or they've disappeared. Yeah. They've seen it. It's real. It doesn't mean that my kids, you know, will, you know, I say to them, make mistakes, just try and make different ones to the ones I made because mine nearly killed me, yeah. you know, and, and bottom line, like the love of my mum, there's nothing they could ever do to make me love them any more or any less. Yeah. And it was the same with all of the women that we supported through the charity. It's like, there's nothing you could do to make me love you any more or any less because that's the grace that I needed. Let's talk about the charity. Like I, I, in my head, I'm sitting here now, and I'm sitting, it's like the music speeding up. Uh-huh. And it's like, here we go, we, we get out of rehab. Mm. When did you develop your purpose coming out of rehab? 
It was writing. It was the story. It was, yeah. yeah. How moving it could be? Um, I think that I saw other people's transformation on the other side of my surrender. Way to articulate it. So it was kind of, I don't want to not tell it because there's other people who need to hear it. And it might be the neighbour of an addict, a parent, an aunt, you know, sibling could be the addict themselves or someone struggling with addiction as opposed to calling them an addict, you know, struggles. But it was there and people started to say, if you write, if you wrote a book, can you speak? Can you come and speak at this church or this school or this thing or go on this TV show or, you know, go on this government website called Positive Stories or whatever it was called all those years ago? Do Writing your book would have been like in Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholic, you do step work. Yeah. And it would have been very similar to doing step work. Yeah. I just didn't realise it was going to be a 200-page step. That's <laughs> <laughs> a step, step four. Yeah. But amazing. And was it – writing the book, was it cathartic? Was it healing for you? Absolutely. And, yeah. again, I didn't, know it was a, I didn't know it was a book. I just was writing my story. And then one day so a lady came over from church and she was just like, you know, I, I want to edit your book. And I was like, I don't have a book. And she said, aren't you writing your story? Like a handful of people knew about it. It's funny that people – We'll hear a story like yours, and I'm just—I get fascinated. Why would you be inspired about yeah. my story? Isn't everyone got a story like, like this? We normalise. <laughs> yeah, isn't everyone this way? Yeah, and we're different. We have got different stories than the, the average person. Yeah. Well, I spoke at a boys' school when I was thirty, like seventeen years ago, and I my book had come out the year before, and I hadn't, you know, done a lot of public speaking. But I knew I'd always loved—I love speaking. I love communicating truth and mm. story and goodness, you know. And this young boy, you know, I said, hi, I'm Bronwyn Healy. I'm 30 years old. I know I look way younger. Ha, ha, ha. I actually think I look younger now. I found the fountain of youth. But this young boy in the back put his hand up and he said, excuse me, miss, you look 21. And I said, thank you, young man. That's very kind. Unfortunately, when I was 21, I was actually a messed up drug addicted prostitute. And I weighed 40 kilos and I looked and felt and smelt like death warmed up. Thank goodness that my past is not my future and that what I've done is not who I am. And he kind of stared at me from the back row. And I remember thinking as those words came out of my mouth, there is so much power in that for every person that I'm ever going to meet. Your past is not your future. Yeah. What you've done and what's been done to you is not who you are. Yeah. Right? So back then when I'm thinking, you know, and you're telling this story and this young guy, you know, and you're looking, you're like, I was a messed up drug addicted prostitute at the age of 21. Who would have ever thought you and I would be invited to the places that we've gone? You know, I said to someone this week, years ago, I was nominated for Queensland Australian of the Year. And the year after, as a finalist in that, I lost to Mal's Last Dancer. But, um, you know. Can't win them all. Well, you know, his daughter came up later and she's like, I'm so sorry you're up against Dad. He wins everything. (laughs) 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 The year after was the state reception and Wills and Kate were going to be there. So now, you know, you're seeing them on every news station everywhere across the, the planet. Isn't that beautiful, though? Your trauma can take you to those places. Right. So uh, there's a copy of Trophy of Grace at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, rightly so. You know? It's a great read. Who knew? I, who knew I'd get a letter back from Wills and Kate's royal state receptionist, you know, with a Buckingham Palace letterhead? Let's move into the charity because it's, it's passionate. It's a really well-known charity. So I resigned from it three years ago after a car accident and after I wasn't, I say, wasn't treated very kindly by the board, which was a whole different round of heartbreaking grief. But when 
we started, I started doing outreach to the women that I used to be in 2005. Mm. And it was, you know, we had a Valentine's Day and we gave these women flowers and chocolates and hugs and, you know, they had a, they got a poem on a card that reminded them that they were seen, known and loved. And that's um, important, isn't it? And I told my story. Yeah. So I didn't realize that of all the women that we'd invited from all of the shelters and, you know, drug, you know, rehabs and refuges and needle exchanges, that out of the 70 women, 50 plus of them were going to then want help and support. And there was nowhere specifically to send them. And so we did a Christmas in July and I thought that's really good. A couple of big events a year, we can do that. And then the next year I felt a prompt to start a charity. And I remember going to a friend who was a lawyer and I said, look, I don't even know what it means, but it's called the Hope Foundation. And he laughed. He said, there's no way that name's not taken. I said, all right. And he said, if it's not, I'll do your work pro bono. I said, okay. So I am now Bronwyn, the former, you know, I will always be the founder that's the most important. Can't take that away, but the former CEO of the Hope Foundation. Yeah. And, you know, I remember him looking up from his computer and being like, oh, crap, it doesn't exist. And we did this work and I had no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to help people. I just wanted to come alongside people. And we ended up with a drop-in space in Brisbane. And then we, a few years later, which was called Hope Haven. And then a few years later, um, started a social enterprise cafe called the Lovewell Project. And that was to help women find reskilling and, you know, find their dignity and work in a place where they're going to be seen, known and loved. Dignity is, dignity is massive because that's the first thing we lose in yeah. drug addiction. It's yeah. the first thing that goes out the window. The dignity is gone. Yeah. I think that's where the void comes in. Yeah. When the dignity goes, yeah. the void appears. I agree. And, you know, the universal, you know, human declaration talks about every human being treated with dignity, which is why I'm so passionate, why I'm saying, you know, the Queensland State Corrective Services won't let you in yet Mm. because every person on the other side of those walls needs to be seen and be treated with dignity. 100%. They deserve it. They're worth it. 100%. Again, with Hope Foundation and the Hope Haven, it was like nothing like that existed when I left rehab. Like there was nowhere specifically for me to go. No, no specific community of people that I knew I was going to be safe with, that someone was going to hug me when I walked through the door. That was the importance of the drop-in centre, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that if I needed shampoo and conditioner and a toothpaste or clothes or yeah. food. no matter how badly broken you are, here's someone yes. that cares. Yes, and you're seen and you matter. Because I know from my own experience, it's like that's the first thing the Royal Commission said to me when I was first engaged when they said, we believe you mm. and your story matters. Right. And I went, okay, when, since when? Mm. And I found that hard to believe. But um, as time went by, I just, that was that, that was the seed bringing me back my self-worth. But the thing is to now we can sit here across, you know, the microphones from each other and be like, our voice has value. Yeah. You know, I've done a strange story. We've done 44 hours of filming for 32 minutes of, Oh, my gosh. That, that was, man, that was like... Oh, my man, word. The biggest interrogation I've ever had in my life. And that was like being in a police station for <laughs> 44, 44 hours. hours. No, it wasn't. It was beautiful. It was cathartic. <laughs> and um, the strange story was, had so many different layers to it for myself. Your patterns are the same as my patterns. Yeah. Different story, same patterns. Same patterns. Yeah. I wanted to get back to what's the importance of rehabs loving people back to wellness? Well, I talk about being, you know, I was loved back to life. You know, like I walked in there, a dead man, dead woman walking. I was like a zombie. 
24-year-old, 42-kilo zombie. And, you know, there was mess and, you know, brokenness and I there was a lot of pain caused to me within that rehab yeah. um, that has taken another round of, you know, whole different layers of healing. But the lady who ran that rehab and there was two female volunteers that used to come nearly every week and they'd bring lemon muffins and they <laughs> want to sit people. and chat, you know. One of them I'm still re- like really close with, yeah. like 23 years later. And the lady that ran that rehab, she saw me and she didn't just see me throw a plate through a wall or punch a hole in the wall or listen to my foul language. She saw me. When she saw you, what do you think she saw? I have to believe that she saw hope. Yeah. Because when I, you know, 12 months later when I left rehab, her husband said, we didn't think you'd make it. We've seen, we've had some people with really hard hearts come through here. And we just didn't think you'd make it. A hard heart. And like, when did the hard heart soften? Um, Well, I became a Christian six weeks after I went into rehab. And that was huge for me because I'd been searching for so long for something that would fill a void. but That That void is massive for an addict. That I could connect to. And so I found connection in that. But the tenderness has been, you know, it had to be from the inside out. Mm. I had to start being kind to myself and that's been that's had you know you're talking about lay, the, the layers of Bronwyn Healy that's been layers and layers and layers and even you know with my most recent divorce in 2019 and the pain that came from that heartbreak it's like there's a whole nother level of layers mm-hmm. and there's a whole nother level of tenderness that now you know it's like I feel like at 47 I'm the softest kindest and truest version of me that I've ever been. The other versions weren't untrue. And the more you don't work on your wounds and your pain and your roots and the chaos of your story or the intergenerational pain, the harder you get, yeah. of course. Yeah, it's yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to be living your life that way. You're getting softer with age. I, I hope I am. Yeah, so do I. I. I'd like to think I am. I think I'm getting – I understand compassion and empathy and the importance of it. Yeah. Because we've been the recipients of it. Yeah. We've been on the other side. Someone planted seeds along the way and it grew within. Yeah. And so now we have the privilege. You know, we don't have to do it. Yeah. But if we see other people through those the, those eyes of grace, you know, and be kind, we don't know their story. I'd done a, a live stream last night and I had my son on there. Mm-hmm. And my son and, and and we wanted to talk we wanted to talk about the effects of my behaviour on my twenty one year old oh, son. Oh wow. It was heavy. I had to own a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. It starts off with an apology and then wow, you know what I mean. Do you ever see any of your behaviours in your children? Uh yeah. Yeah. How hard's that? You see good, bad and ugly. Yeah. You know, so when people are like, Oh, she's so much like her mother <laughs> You're like, um, she's her own person. Which, which version? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and for me, I say, you know, my kids are my closest fruit. Mm. You know, it's like they're, they're, they're the people that, you know, you would live or die for. Yeah. They are. And so, you know, when people see the good in them, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, oh, such and such said this or, you know, the way that your kid responded to that. Gee, they're stubborn. You're like, yeah, I got it from (laughs) my mother. (laughs) And they're also very generous and they're also very kind and they're also very mindful and they're also very stubborn and they're also very determined and they're also very dogged. You know, they're my kids. Mm. They were raised by me. 
you know. It's it's beautiful that you when you see those really good things. It's worrying when you see the bad things. I know. I just look at him and go, oh. And again, that, like I said before, you know, there's nothing that any of them could do to make me love them any more or any less. They're safe in my love. Yeah. Good you place know, to be. You know, the, the phone, if, if their name shows up on the phone. It's answered. Then the world stops yeah. because when an adult kid reaches out for a parent, you do whatever you need to do. Yeah. And my mum did the same for me. Yeah. Your mother's love is obviously evident in, in your own love that you give and that you pass in your, uh, that's intergenerational. Absolutely. The good stuff can be intergenerational too. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Roman, where can people find you? That's a good question. I've been finding myself again after <laughs> <laughs> resigning from the charity three years ago and realising how much heart and effort and soul I'd put into it. So I've just, I'm rediscovering my voice. So come find me on Instagram, Bronwyn Healy. And then I've got an Instagram page that I feel like is going to get some more attention with my writing. And that one's called Love Bronwyn. The book that I wrote, Trophy of Grace, that you read, in jail all those years ago is going to get a re rewrite a re-ending you know it's been mm. it came out 18 years ago there's a whole lot to add to the end um and then i wrote a book 10 years ago called i have issues don't you that i think i'm <laughs> yes i do still do yeah, um i've got a few yeah that's going to get a re-release as a you know study guide and who knows what else that might be next year but i'm studying full-time this year and my baby's in grade 12 so Next year, I'm going to have a bunch of different time and space to be able to focus on. Can I recommend one thing? Yeah. TikTok. Yeah. I'm killing it on TikTok. We get these big forums on there. Yeah. whole heap of us get in there, like people who have turned their lives around. We've done it last night with my young bloke. We get about eight of us on there and we get in panels. Yeah. And people get in Q&A sessions. We, we get on there for four hours. Oh, my gosh. Seven, seven, eight hundred people asking us questions. Okay. I'll see you there. See you there. <laughs> Bromwyn Healy. Thank you for being on the stick up. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. I said I want to meet that woman one day and here you are. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Most welcome.